0: Time to travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening I'll be chatting with Chris Fallows, and he's an expert on the Great White Shark and owner of Apex Shark Expeditions about this majestic creature of the sea. Ansgar Latten, General Manager of Allais Bleu Wine Estate in France, will be on the line and we'll be chatting about their Herb farm tours and all the other things on offer there. And then in the My Town feature, I'll be chatting with Anna-Marie von Sale about the Isilkisris donkey sanctuary in McGregor. And I think I've mentioned on the show before that McGregor is one of my favourite places to visit. There's so much to do there. And Graham Howe's back again this week, and this time we're off to Lord Howe Island, just off the coast of Australia. Now, he's very proud of himself because this island, apparently, he says, is named after him. Well... That's what he thinks, but we'll find out more about that a bit later. And reminder that if you need any information about something you hear on time to travel this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to travel on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Time to travel with Karin Key. Well, Alier Bleu Wine Estate, just outside Franciuk, one of the Western Cape's biggest herb producers, are now hosting unique weekly tours for anyone interested in how herbs are grown. Well, besides their herb production, there's a lot more going on at Alier Bleu. And to tell us more, I'm joined now by Anscar Flarton, General Manager. Anscar, good evening. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Corinne.
0: You know, when you read about what's available at Aller Bleu, it's one of those one-stop shops for as, as a destination. There's everything there. Tell us what, what people can find at Alain Bleu.
1: Well, Corinne, we, oh, you're, you're 100% correct. That's exactly what we try and offer the, uh, the, the, uh, the consumers is a one-stop shop. So what we have is, is we're, we're an agricultural estate, and uh, we, we do wines, we do, uh, we do fruit, and obviously we have a lot of
0: talent. Oh, your cell is right. breaking up very badly here, I'm afraid. Are you moving around at all? I'm I'm standing to Elizabeth. Oh no, you're breaking up terribly. I wonder if we could try and get you back on a landline. Um, yeah. Okay, I think we're going to have to call you back on a landline because the cell phone is breaking up terribly. So if you'll just hang up the cell, we'll call you right back. But in the meantime, while we're waiting to get Ansgar back on the line, I just want to tell you about the Satyagraha house. I have had them on the the show a few months back. It's Mahatma Gandhi's historical Johannesburg home. It's also a heritage site. It was authentically restored into a guest house and a museum, and they're very eager to expose the Gandhi experience to more South Africans. And To do that, to attract local visitors, they're offering a half-price special for the month of July, and it's a 50% discount for local overnight guests, and it covers all sorts of things. If you actually, with all the different accommodation, it's literally half-price. If you'd like to find out more about their specials, you can either call them um, on 011-485-5928 or 011-485-2471, and they have a website. It's Satyagraha House. So it's S-A-T-Y-A-G-R-A-H-A House, Za. And just ask them about their fabulous special. And it's, it's wonderful that it's actually for locals. There's not very many times that we get a special just for us. And this is one of those ones that if you're wanting to go and experience Mahatma Gandhi's historical Johannesburg home, definitely go and do that in the month of July. As I said, a set of 50% discount for local overnight guests, and it includes all sorts of different things. So definitely try that. I think we've got Ansgar back on the line. Ansgar, are you back with me?
1: Yes, I am, Cara. Oh, I there you are. a bit of oh,
0: Much better. So we were talking about what was available at uh, Alay Bleu, uh, talking about accommodation. Let's start with that.
1: Okay, accommodation. We've got, uh, we've got a number of unique uh, um, uh, rooms on the farm. We've got two suites. Um, and we've got the Kendall Cottage, so in total on the farm we can accommodate six uh, six couples, um, which uh, includes our sort of heritage homes on the farm, um, which have been really done up nicely in, in a little bit of a modern, uh, with a bit of a modern flair.
0: And if people are coming out for the day, there's restaurants, there's, you can have picnics in summer on the, on the farm as well.
1: Absolutely, well, picnics are are, um, are one of our are, are one of the big favourites on the farm. Um, we do a great summer picnic, and uh, one of the nice things we do is is we call it a chicnic. Oh. So it, um, it's slightly more sophisticated. You sit down at a nice table, and your picnic basket arrives. And uh, we also cater for children, so that's that's a big. Uh, uh, a big part of, of what we offer on the farm is, is uh, catering for families.
0: Well, that, that's a big plus because often when you talk about wine farms, people think, well, it's just for the grown-ups, but uh, you make a special effort to, you know, to allow families to come, which is fabulous.
1: Absolutely, and, and that's what we're trying to do at Aliblu and uh, what you uh, what you introduced us as being is as a destination. So we, we do not only wine on the farm, we do herbs, we do export fruit, and then we have the restaurant and the picnic, and we also do conferencing and weddings and uh, and all sorts of uh, hospitality um, Hospitality needs.
0: So now let's get down to the herb tour. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. Something rather unique. I've never heard of anyone else doing that.
1: Well, you know, one of the things is, is as you said earlier, we, we're one of the biggest producers of fresh herbs in the Western Cape. Um, we pack under our own brand Ali Blue, which is uh, available in, in tops and spas. and um we also do a large part of the uh, of the pick and pay house brand so we we want to um encourage healthy livy healthy healthy living and um we 're a lifestyle brand, so that was one of the decisions for us to introduce people to the herbs it 's such a great product it 's a fresh product. Um, and we really wanted people to understand uh, a little bit more in terms of what we offer from from a you know a total package point of view.
0: So, how often do you have these tours?
1: Well, at the moment we do we do it on an ad, uh, not an ad hoc basis, but if people want to come to the farm, um, you know they're welcome to come and see us any time they want to. But um, the main the main tours are done on a Friday morning at eleven o'clock. Um, we uh, we've got a great lady that does uh, herb production called Loria Morman. Uh, you know she's got loads of experience in terms of, of producing herbs. And what the idea is is that um, the guests arrive at the farm. We've got uh, 28 hydroponic tunnels on the farm. So then Loria takes them through the through the various tunnels and uh, shows them what we're doing in terms of production. And it gives uh, you know gives people a great opportunity to speak to Loria and um, understand a little bit more about herb production.
0: And this takes, what, about an hour and a half?
1: Yeah, the, the, the tour part takes about an hour um, and then um, what we do after that is is we introduce people to what we can achieve with herbs in the kitchen, so a bit of a culinary experience.
0: Oh, that's nice. Um,
1: we, have, uh, we have a lunch after the herb tour.
0: Made, I'm sure lots of herbs in the meal.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what we do is um, we try and uh, obviously, herbs, uh, herbs are a seasonal product. So, what we do in terms of the lunch is we then look at what's you know what's in season or what's seasonal, and, and seasonal can re- literally be, um, you know, on a weekly or a daily basis. So then, what we do is we take the product into the kitchen, uh, and our chefs then produce what we think is a is a good culinary um, experience of herbs.
0: And are we able to buy any of these plants while we're out there?
1: Uh, unfortunately, not the not the plants at this stage, i'm I'm still trying to convince Laria that maybe <laughs> we should uh, we should uh, outside of the twenty eight hydroponic tunnels, we should maybe produce a couple of nice terracotta um, pot plants with mm. herbs in, but uh, they definitely consumers can't buy the herbs on the farm uh, and and then take them take them home with them.
0: But it's rather nice because we get the experience of seeing how they' grown, how they come to literally end up in your dishes when you're cooking them. so you see them from start to finish basically.
1: Well, that's the wonderful thing is is what we've what we've realised with herbs. I mean, you know, wh- wine is a is a wonderful product, and everybody has a great uh, interest in, in wine, um, for various reasons. But uh, what we've discovered about herbs is is that ninety percent of the people that we meet in our in our day to day life, uh, you know, all have a story of either very successful or very um, unsuccessful herb um, herb practice or herb cultivation practices. So what? what we want to do is is we want to be able to give people the opportunity to to interact about their you know their experiences with herbs and hopefully create a whole lot of home growing herb gurus
0: because i i've mentioned this on the show quite a number of times on this show and another show that i do called health matters where i always say it's relatively simple once you've got the basics because you can grow them in a pot or you can grow them sort of in a, you don't need a huge area to grow a little bit of herb just for you to use at home it's relatively simple
1: well, well, that that's that's the theory. The theory is just that it's relatively simple. Well, once so you've
0: got the basics right, you know.
1: I- exactly, and and I think that's what the great opportunity about the herb tours, uh, you know, is, is that um, you know, if your coriander goes to seed too quickly, or your rocket flowers too quickly, you know, you can always speak to lario and uh, you know, she's got some she's got some wisdom and some uh, some interesting. Um, experiences in terms of how you can do that properly and and one of the things which i I must commend loria on as well is is that she's putting in a lot of effort in terms of understanding how to cultivate um herbs more sort of organically or closer to nature so she's got understanding of what the natural predators are and how you can bring you know how you can bring an equilibrium equilibrium in into uh, into your herb production which I think is very important
0: I'm going to have to make a point of coming out there because my coriander goes to seed way too fast so I'm going to have to come and do a tour and learn how to grow my coriander properly Ansgore, it sounds like a wonderful new addition to uh, what's available already on Ale Bleu, and hopefully lots of people will be coming out to learn some more about herbs and we'll all be growing our own and, and eating a lot more of them once we realise what we can do with them so thank you well, so much for yo, I was gonna, sorry I was going to say thank you for joining me but do you want to add something?
1: Yeah, sorry, Karen. I mean, it's obviously not in our best interest to have you all growing herbs very no. well. But um, <laughs> if, you, if you can't, you're always more than welcome to buy Ali Bleu herbs in your local supermarket. No, well, or
0: I'm, pick and absolutely. But we always try and help ourselves. We don't do it terribly well. As I said, mine, mine goes to seed way too fast. So I <laughs> still end up having to buy it anyway. So, but um, it's been really nice to come and see how you do it properly out there. So please, thank, please you're more than welcome. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Wonderful, Karin. Thanks Thank you for very joining me. Thanks for listening. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Good night. And Scott Flotten is the general manager of Aller Bleu Wine Estate near Franschuk. And if you'd like to find out more about what's on offer there, take a look at their website. It's www.allaisbleu.com. That's A L L E B L E U E. AllaisBleu.com. Or you can call them on 021 874 1021. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, Chris Fallows is an expert on the Great White Shark and he's written a book called Great White and the Majesty of Sharks. He's worked with National Geographic, BBC's Planet Earth, Discovery Channel and he's helped produce the Air Jaws series of shark documentaries. And he'll be the guest speaker at the one and only hotel in Cape Town on the 18th and the 23rd of July. But we're lucky enough to speak with him tonight. Chris, good evening. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks very much, Cora. Nice to be chatting to you.
0: When you mention great white sharks, I think you, you get one of two reactions: either, "Gosh, what majestic creatures!" or, "Oh my goodness, I'm not setting foot in the sea." And one, one of the big things that you talk about a lot is is about education and awareness and understanding them.
2: Absolutely. You know, I think there's uh, very there are very few words in the English uh, dictionary that I think elicit more emotive response than the word shark. And I think you know. We certainly made huge steps forward in terms of educating people and I think the the, the awareness is so much um, better than what it used to be in terms of what sharks are really about but you know hopefully through the talks and through a lot of the documentaries people get exposure to the beautiful side of these animals and you know just w- what magnificent predators they are and at the end of the day how disinterested in humans they generally are so you know, a big part of what we do is really to try and, and bring sharks to people in, in a way that showcases the animal for what it's really about.
0: Now, you own and run a company called Apex Shark Expeditions, and you take people out, obviously, to go and experience the sharks. And you, I think, are world famous for the breaching. You, did you discover it? You and a colleague discovered the fact that they do this?
2: Correct. In, in terms of, you know, really bringing it to the forefront, a colleague and I um, discovered the breaching at Seal Island in 1996. Um, But it it had been seen previously by fishermen and certainly, you know, in other parts of the world, in the Farallon Islands or San Francisco, uh, it had been documented there. But, you know, I guess through the the images and the documentaries, it has really brought it to the public's attention and, um, you know, really highlighted just how athletic these animals can be. And I guess showcase Seal Island has been a unique destination in white shark circles all around the world for the the volume and uh, frequency that we actually see this, incredible hunting behavior at that location.
0: Are they at at risk at all as a species, Chris?
2: Absolutely, Corrine. You know, there's a a common misconception out there that these animals, the populations on the increase and, um, you know, that some people even call for them to be culled. The the truth couldn't be, you know, further removed. Uh, Recent statistics show there may be as few as 3,500 great whites left in the oceans of the world Gosh, Really? Um, you know, we've kept data from our very first trip way back in the, the mid 90s, and it clearly shows a, a decrease in the number of sharks. And, you know, it's a, it's a very worrying thing because the white shark, as with many other shark species, plays a pivotal role in the ecosystem. And these animals are, are vital, uh, you know, to, to maintain that balance. And, you know, quite simply, they're magnificent creatures and they certainly deserve uh, their, their spot in the ocean.
0: They are quite a draw card when it comes to tourism, especially here in the Cape.
2: Absolutely. You know, um, that that goes without a shadow of a doubt that they've become a a very popular draw card. Uh, I think it's now the third most popular outdoor activity to do in in the Cape. Uh, Roughly about 45,000 people come to South Africa to see great white sharks every year. So it's a shining example of how an animal is worth so much more alive than it is dead. And I think, you know, overseas in particular, particularly the States, Sharks are of huge interest. Uh, you know, the Discovery Channel has a week every year that is dedicated to sharks. shark Week, Yeah, if you, you know, when you meet people from the state, Shark Week is a really big deal. People go and have Shark Week parties, and, <laughs> and everybody goes shark crazy. So, you know, these animals certainly are, are, are very topical in many other parts of the world, and... You know, I think more and more people are becoming uh, of of the mindset that it's actually a great privilege to have them on our shores, and hopefully, in years to come, we will revere them in the same way that we do with our terrestrial predators.
0: I was about to ask you whether we take them a bit too much for granted here.
2: I think, you know, I I think the the fact that historically there's been a lot of negative uh, association with sharks and people has done uh, a a lot historically to tarnish the image of the animal. But as people are becoming more educated and aware of of these these creatures, and and they see just how many people from overseas actually want to see them. So the, the interest and education levels has has risen exponentially, and I think you know more local people are actually going out to see the sharks. When we first started working with great whites, probably 95 to 98 percent of the people that you know joined us on our vessel were of an international origin, and that that slowly but surely is changing. We're getting more and more local people wanting to see the great whites. And there's definitely more of a, a positive interest in these animals, which is very encouraging to see.
0: Now, you're going to be, I mentioned earlier, you're going to be speaking at the one and only hotel later this month, the 18th of July and the 23rd. Now, the 18th, you're going to be speaking about the orca. Now, that's not traditionally something that's found in South, on the South African coast, but recently there's been a small pod that's been found here.
2: Correct, Corrin. You know, orcas that occur uh, throughout the South African coastline, and in fact predominantly on the west coast but generally far offshore, generally away from uh, most people's access to the ocean. So fishermen regularly see them offshore, and, and particularly when we start going you know, to the edge of, of uh, our EEZ where we're actually allowed to fish. But of real interest in, in False Bay in the last five years or so, we've suddenly started seeing on a, I wouldn't say a frequent basis, but every year we started seeing uh, the orcas in False Bay and they're specialists in terms of hunting dolphins. And, um, you know, it's probably one of the the most incredible spectacles in all all of nature to see these these huge predators running down a school of a thousand dolphins. And, um, you know, the strategies they use are are phenomenal. It really showcases an animal's intelligence, I think, more graphically pretty much than anything I've ever seen. You know, and the thing about orcas is wherever they occur around the world, they, they specialize. So... What we're seeing in South Africa is they really are dolphin specialists, where they use specific strategies to to catch the dolphins, um, and they use a couple of of different strategies, which is fascinating. You know, sometimes they'll they'll chase them like wild dogs, or chase a herd of impala, waiting for the weak, sick, or or or, or, or tired to to fall off the back, and then they'll pick those animals off. Or sometimes they'll try and isolate an animal from a group, and then basically corral it, to other member, corral it towards other members of the pod, which will then a, a, a attack it, you know, using stealth and surprise. But overseas, you know, the orcas have been known to do coordinated attacks uh, using a bow wave to knock seals off ice flows. On the beaches of Patagonia, they actually race up onto the beaches and take seals off the beaches. And then if you look at them in other parts of the world, you know they're feeding on salmon, they feed on herring in, in, in Norway. In New Zealand, they actually feed on small species of sharks and rays. So wherever these animals occur, they really are the apex predators in that environment. And they, they target a specific niche wherever they occur in terms of their prey and really are, are amongst the most adaptive And I would say, unquestionably, amongst the most intelligent animals on the planet.
0: Well, if you want to hear more about that, you can go and listen to Chris on the 18th of July and then on the 23rd, speaking about the great white. So, that's still, I mean, people are still very interested and fascinated by this creature because I don't think, as the layman, we will ever really fully understand what this great white's all about.
2: No, absolutely. You know, And I think one of the really fascinating things about the great white is no matter how much time you spend with it, it lives in an environment that it's very difficult to follow. And as such, there's a mystique that surrounds this animal. Up until recently, um, nobody's ever been able to keep one alive in, in Aquaria. Monterey Bay Aquarium on the west coast of the States has managed to keep a, a few very, very small individuals for short periods of, of time. But the fact that it is so difficult to study, you know, poses lots of unanswered questions. We, we've got no idea where they actually mate. Nobody's ever seen them giving birth. And... Um, a large part of their natural history remains unknown, and and for me, you know, I work with the animals every day. My wife and I are out there all the time, we're collecting data. We work with some of the top scientists from around the world, but there are still so many unanswered questions about these sharks, and and I really like that, you know, it's it's uh, the mystery is, is part of the mystique that surrounds this creature, and uh, there's a there's a part of me that hopes that we never understand it everything about it. You know, going out there and, and not knowing a little bit about, about sewing makes it that much more interesting to study.
0: It sounds fantastic. So if you want to hear more about the Orca and about the Great White, pop along to the One and Only in on the 18th and the 23rd. I'll give you all the contact details in a moment. But Chris, thank you so much for joining me this evening and good luck with the talks.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Corinne, and uh, I hope you have a good evening forward. but thanks again. Thank you and keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Good
0: night to you. Chris Fallows, who together with his wife Monique owns and runs Apex Predators, will be at the One and Only Hotel Selling Cape Town on the 18th and the 23rd of July as part of the One and Only's guest speaker series. Now, if you'd like to book for one of these fantastic talks, you can contact the hotel by email on restaurant.reservations at oneandonlycapetown.com, or you can call them on 21 431 45 And if you'd like to head out on one of Chris's expeditions, you can take a look at their website. It's www.apexpredators.com or you can call them on 021-788-1863. Time
1: to travel with Karin Key.
0: Well, in the My Town feature this week, I'm joined by Anne-Marie Fonseil, who nearly a decade ago, together with her husband, responded to a request from the SBCA to provide shelter for two badly neglected donkeys. Well, the rest is history, as they say, and the Keys Wrist Donkey Sanctuary in McGregor was born. Anne-Marie, good evening. Welcome
3: to the show. Hello, Corin. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to chat to you.
0: So, rather a unique little sanctuary you've got there in my favourite place in McGregor. Tell Thank us a little you. bit about what you do at the, at the sanctuary. And also, it's open to the public so people can pop along to have a look.
3: Absolutely. I've been listening to your previous um, guests, and I think each one has emphasised the fact that there's so much to learn, and there certainly is so much to learn about donkeys and from donkeys, and we are learning all the time. At the sanctuary, just outside McGregor, we have a herd of 20 donkeys of varying age, and they are almost the shop window or the showcase for the work that we do. We give them a safe, permanent home and the best care that we can, but we also use them to make people aware of these wonderful animals, their needs, and the fact that they deserve respect as much as any other animal. They are not just discardable. Um, Inferior citizens They are absolutely wonderful creatures So we do a lot of educational work As well
0: You do a lot of outreach as well, Anne-Marie Tell me about how that works
3: Our outreach work um, involves Physically visiting donkeys um, That are within our area To make sure that their owners Understand how best to look after them We realised very quickly That we can't ever take in all the donkeys In need Many donkeys have owners And the owners are enthusiastic But perhaps ignorant and donkeys do have specific needs so we try to educate the owners and specifically for people who don't have um, mechanised transport who depend on donkey carts for transport it's very important that their donkeys must be fit and healthy and so they are very interested in keeping their donkeys in good condition. Um, We also have a sort of advice system, which is very, very interesting. I get emails every day of the week from owners all over the country asking for referrals to nearby institutions that can help them or just asking generally donkey care questions. And it's a wonderful um, task to just try and find out the best information to make sure that they get the best information from us. We also have a schools program where we receive schools um, and let them interact with the donkeys and try and educate them so they can also go home and spread the message of a culture of caring.
0: It's almost as if the poor donkey was almost the sort of relative that's been forgotten because everybody loves horses and talk about horses and you yes. know, and the poor donkey who you know is just as gorgeous as ever. They're sort of kind of. They're the right side at the here. end of, mm. of the
3: line when it comes to status. And one of our very, very um, strong points that we're adamant about is raising the status of donkeys. Um, I was always a horse lover myself. I still am. But I'm afraid that a lot of horse owners even do look down on donkeys. And mm. we've unfortunately even had some professionals who say, oh, it's just a donkey. Because it doesn't seem to have commercial value. And unfortunately in this day and age that often determines how an animal is treated. They are quite wonderful creatures, they are hard-working, they are stoical beyond belief and they are so humble, we can learn so much from them. They're also highly intelligent.
0: Now Anurumi, you have all these donkeys in the sanctuary, how on earth do you actually support them? Where where does your funding come from?
3: Well, we are a registered charity, we're an NPO and a PBO, so we depend on help from the public. We have an adoption program, you can adopt a donkey, you don't take it home, we look after it for you, but you get a certificate of photograph and a report on your donkey and a newsletter, and you can come and visit your donkey. So you have a special interest in a particular donkey, and you can support the donkey for as much or as little as you can afford. It also makes a lovely present, for example, for grandchildren who live overseas, because they certainly won't have a similar one, and it won't be the wrong color or the wrong size, and it gives them an anchor in the country. So our adoption program is very important to us. It raises awareness because people will display the photograph of their donkey, and everybody will say, why do you have a donkey on your desk? (laughs) And uh, the income from that helps to keep us ticking over as far as the sort of hands-on care, and much of the outreach is is concerned we also have a bequest program that we are launching now i think we've established our long-term viability and people are requested to consider us in their wills we have an annual book fair which is a big three-day event in mcgregor it brings a lot of people from all over the western cape and um yeah generally donations are always very welcome as well
0: Hello? Sorry, we had a slight technical issue there, Noree. Sorry okay. about that. Um, now, if people come out to the sanctuary, what, what can they expect to see when they come there? Is it, Do you have tours? Do you have guides? Yes. How does it work? we
3: have guides. At the moment, we have guides on weekends. Um, if you phone us, if you're coming from far away, then we can arrange to have a guide to meet you specifically if, if you can't come during the weekend. Um, and we take you into the fields We make quite sure that you understand that you mustn't frighten the donkeys, no running around or loud voices, because many of them are very old. So they appreciate quiet, gentle behavior, and you can interact with the donkeys. And we find that some people will spend an hour or more just talking, brushing, and communicating with the donkey. There's an immense peacefulness at the sanctuary, and we like to think that it's not only a sanctuary for donkeys, but it's also a sanctuary for people.
0: And you open Thursdays to Sundays from 11 till 4, is that correct?
3: That's right. And the guides are on duty on Saturdays and Sundays from 11 till 2. Um, But as I say, we can always make special arrangements if people contact us.
0: I don't think I've ever heard of another donkey sanctuary anywhere else in the country. Are you the only one?
3: We are the only one that has registered and gone the whole official route. There are... A few other institutions that have collected donkeys and given them safe homes, but they don't have the extent of educational programs and adoption programs that we do. But we do work very closely with each other. We try to help when when we're looking for homes for donkeys. But I do believe that we are the most officially recognized and registered one.
0: I will give out the website address in a moment. But Indeed. if you'd like to go and f- have a look at those pictures of those gorgeous donkeys, you'll be on the road tomorrow going out to the sanctuary to go and have a look because well, they just welcome. they look absolutely so gorgeous. You you almost want to take one home with you. Yeah. So if you don't can't do that, so just adopt one anyway, and you'll help with with feeding them and caring for them, and they really do deserve. Um, a little bit of of love and care and you're giving that to them, Anna-Marie. I think it's a wonderful initiative that you and your husband
3: started. uh, It's very rewarding. We have learned so much and we have benefited so much ourselves. They really are most rewarding animals.
0: Well, as I've always said, McGregor's one of my favourite places and if you're going out that way, if you're not sure quite where McGregor is, it's very close to Robertson. So you can go out (laughs) to enjoy the Robertson area and pop along to McGregor and don't leave there without going to see the donkeys. It's a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience, something you're not going to see anywhere else, I don't think.
3: you will come
0: back often. And you will come back often, absolutely. Anne-Marie thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening and good luck with the sanctuary and hopefully lots of people will pop up and give you a visit and hopefully you'll have a lot more adoptive parents out there adopting a donkey. Absolutely,
3: thank you so much Karen, and thank you for helping to raise the status of donkeys.
0: Only a pleasure thank you for your time.
3: Thank you. Good night to you,
0: bye bye. Anne-Marie von Sale who together with her husband Dr. Johan founded the Esselkes Risk Donkey Sanctuary in McGregor. Now if you'd like to find out more about the work that they do or if you'd like to arrange a visit or possibly even adopt a donkey take a look at their website it's www.donkeysanctuary.co.za or you can call them on 023-625-1593 023-625-1593
1: time to travel with car and key
0: If you were listening to the show last week, you would have heard that Graham Howe is back in the country. He's been swanning about all over Australia. Um, I I mentioned at the end of last week's chat with him that I was a little nervous about speaking with him this week, mainly because he now thinks he's terribly important because he's just come back from somewhere called Lord Howe Island, and he's almost convinced it's called after him being Graham Howe, but I'm almost sure it isn't. Graham, good evening. (laughs) Welcome back to the show. So, Do I grovel now, or what is it now?
4: Oh, I should have briefed you on etiquette before oh, you the didn't. show. I'm sorry. It's Howe approach to approach Lord Howe. I certainly put everyone at ease when I was uh, checking in at Sydney uh, Domestic Airport. I mean, I should explain that Lord Howe Island is a is a sort of top-end tourist destination about 700 kilometres northeast of Sydney on the way to Norfolk Island and about halfway to New Zealand and a very historic island in terms of settlement and uh, discovery in the in the sort of settler period. And I've wanted to go to Lord Howe Island for ages. I mean, uh, <laughs> sure just, you have. Just, just a laugh because... <laughs> Half of the, all the unique uh, flora and fauna species have my surname somewhere in mm. there, Howia or Howiana. I was very amused when with colleagues, we arrived at the airport in Sydney and they were calling the flight uh, to check in. And all I heard over the public address system was, Lord How, Lord How. I said, I'm coming, I'm coming. <laughs> Stop by. I- Tuck my hand up, <laughs> raced to the front of the uh, check-in desk, and the woman on the desk at the, on the Qantas desk said, "Lord Howe," at me, and I said, "Yes, how did you know?" You know. So she looked a bit confused, and then I gave her my passport as ID, and she she was she thought it was a real laugh. So I said, anyway, M- Mister Howe will do. I'm a Democrat, not an aristocrat. <laughs> um, and we then proceeded, of course, through security. And again, uh, as we were approaching the actual gate to board the aircraft, there were all these last-minute call for Lord Howe. Now, and, and again I had my hand up and uh, we checked in and went boarding the flight and it's a small propeller job, one of the kinds of planes I know you love Oh I just particular. love those, yes yeah and it's a 38 seater and it's just a daily flight out of Sydney. In fact only 400 people are allowed to stay at any one time on the oh, island right. they on a they particular limit the day because they've, okay. li- li- they've limited the number of development and it's a UNESCO mm. World Heritage Site for, for various reasons which I'll explain later and not just because it's called Lord Howe Island. As I was checking in the cabin steward at the top of the stairs. They always read off your pass to make sure you are who you say or and she said, Good morning, Mr. Howe. And I could see it just and she looked down and there it was. (laughs) Destination Howe Island. Passenger's name, Howe. And she looked very (laughs) confused for a minute and did a double take. So she said, gosh, gosh, and, you know, and, and so it proceeded. We flew for the next, uh, it's just under two hours, the, uh, the, the flight. And Lord Howe is the southernmost uh, tropical reef in the world and, in fact, is known as the paradise of the Pacific because of its gorgeous coral reefs and because environmentally it's been so protected for decades by the islanders who live there. Just part only- of Australia it's governed as part of New South Wales. It was settled by one of uh, one of Captain Cook's and the First Fleet, in fact, were headed for Norfolk Island um, to establish a penal settlement, which is an even further away uh, Australian possession. Um, but you don't need a visa to go there. I mean, just to It's Mm. part of mainland um, Australia. But they live a very isolated life on the island, apart from that sort of daily flight that comes in um, these days. And it's a very short runway, about 800 metres. So it's very wedged between two sand dunes. So you're in the drink, apparently. (laughs) If if, uh, It's never happened. But there have been high winds which have kept people from landing or from leaving the island, which would be even better because I had to be reluctantly dragged away from my namesake's island. As you fly in, because it's part of a group of islands, it was originally this huge ridge called Lord Howe Rise, a big volcanic apparently formed about 7 million years ago. And so I'm told you could originally walk from um, Lord Howe Island all the way to New Zealand on land, and it's just a little remnant of a sort of volcanic caldera, which in a beautiful horseshoe island, small island, about 11 kilometers long, and about 2.8 Eight at its widest point and very lush and covered in palms of course the Lord Howeya uh, palm um, and the Lord Howrier thatched palm and when I got off the uh, the aircraft we'd just seen this incredible sight it's the tallest um, sea stack in the world which is a basalt column that rises hundreds of metres out of the ocean and it's like a fragment that's been eroded and it's called Ball's Pyramid not after Mrs. Ball's um, the chutney um, lady I was told <laughs> but after the first Lieutenant who founded the island. I think his name was Lidgebird Ball, and he named it uh, after the current head of the Admiralty. This is in 1788, who was a Lord Howe from Buckinghamshire, where the family seat is. Um, I should hesitate. I should say not my family seat, no. as you know. <laughs> my family seats in Cape Town. It's this this incredible sight of, of of Ball's Pyramid, and I was aware that it was the most famous Lord Howe Island. I think in the 80s hit the world headlines when as a stick insect or a phasmid believed to have been extinct for centuries literally almost sort of since prehistoric times was found living on a bush high on Ball's Pyramid by a mountaineer there and they identified it and in fact David Attenborough is now a breeding project for the Lord Howe stick insect I never got to see it because I didn't climb this enormous basalt rock standing in the middle of the ocean which you fly in about 20 kilometres from Lord Howe Island so you actually skirt it as you come in. But somebody who
0: spoke to there said living on Lord Howe Island he felt like he was living in a David Attenborough documentary yeah,
4: exactly. The <laughs> naturalist, Ian Hutton, who mm. has written all the books and photographed uh, the 101 uh, wonderful insects, all named after Lord Howe. I was quite relieved I didn't see the Lord Howe cockroach, which is endemic to the island. Oh, but there's yeah. also Lord Howe gecko, which I did see. Oh, um, cute. And so I had a checklist of, of all these uh, things. But it's... Um, a fantastic destination. I mean, it's 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 known as a naturalist paradise. People go there to uh, look at the uh, the all the the seabirds that breed on the island, uh, shearwaters and petrels. And
0: they've got funny and, names. It's, they're just like but, Australia. Everything's got a weird do, name.
4: They do, yes. And unfortunately, one of the little islands off of Lord Howe Island is called Muttonbird Island, and mm. it was because the uh, the shearwaters used to colonise the island, breed on the island. The early sailors used to eat, eat them and reckon they tasted like Bird. In fact, while you're cycling, the, the speed limit on the island is 25 kilometres an hour, and there are very few cars. And most people cycle uh, because it's flat apart from the mountain peaks. But there are these warning signs everywhere about the flightless wood hen that was bred from extinction. Well, from and
0: who nearly took them out again?
4: 20, and, and you've got to be careful on you your did. bicycle. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because I was so busy reading and photographing the mind, out, mind the mind the mutton birds and mind the wood hens, and I was trying to get a picture of a wood hen crossing underneath this because they're flightless and they seem to wait for you to come trundling along on your bicycle down one of the like heart attack hill, which is the only hill which takes some climbing. I was very amused to hear that they've only got one policeman on the island, called Wayne Sergeant Wayne. No one even knew his surname and apparently his main activity is setting up roadblocks to catch people who cycle without helmets and so I was warned very strongly that I should wear my helmet because being so far from anywhere, they have a clinic on the island. But in the case of an emergency, the 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 air force has to fly out and do a medevac. Um, so if you do, were to have a cycling accident, and probably be the the only idiot in two hundred years on the island to have uh, be Mr. Howe, uh, would, would, yeah, exactly. Mm. You'd have to be flown off the island. So they do have this strict policy. Otherwise, you have to walk your bike home. That's the fair. <laughs> and I was told that the the only the cell is used for bridge and card sessions every Friday evening at the police station. And that and it's never been used for anything else apart from to cool off uh, the odd drunken yachty who comes through. What's this um, thing about
0: the chicken run, though?
4: The chicken run. Oh, they had at the. They, they've got two clubs online. The golf club, which is on the old vegetable patch, and where you can off the eighth hole, you lose more balls into the sea because it's right on the sea. So the golf club, and they have the bowling club, known as the Bolo Club. So they have draws there apparently every Sunday. They have a jackpot draw, and it's called the chicken run, and you win a frozen chicken. But I was warned that if only islanders can enter it if we went along to this community pub and bar. And that if you uh, – but if we won it, we'd have to give it back. And they said no one in their right mind would eat it because <laughs> apparently it's been passed the around for one. the last 200 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's frozen chicken. They said, for God's sake, don't thaw the chicken, you know. Um, so it's called the chicken run. But the islanders Wait, are very no friendly. Second. Mm. On my first day out, everyone was waving at me, and I thought, that's fantastic, you know, and I'd wave back. And eventually I stopped to take a picture, and one of the islanders came up to me and said, "Um, Excuse me, sir, he said, But are you aware you've got your helmet on back in front? (laughs) And he said people have been waving at you all down the road because sergeant wayne won't be very impressed it was one of these new high-tech the ones space edge looking i had no idea and i thought it was fitted uncomfortably you know and I, I felt i felt while i was cycling that i should be looking the other way all the time which is how it sort of literally turned my head around so that was just hilarious and i went into Larrups, which is just about every islander there um goes back six or seven generations one of them might have married into onto the island but a lot of them have the names of the original settlers so it's much like visiting Tristan da Cunha or St Helena two of my other fam- favorite island destinations again when I bought a Lord Howe t-shirt of course I had to come oh, back with and them. you're wearing, fact, it I'm tonight. wearing it today you're wearing it um, yeah which is an extinction is forever t-shirt because they they they're fiercely protective of of all their mutton birds and um uh, wood hens etc the woman uh, her name was Lisa Makiti who was the uh, the owner of Larrups and and again whose family goes back forever on the island she sold me the t-shirt, swiped my credit card and I was amazed because you know there's no mm. cell phone coverage on the island but they, they can use a credit card and she said looking at the slip she said oh thank you Mr Howe and again did a double take and I had to explain I said surely you've seen Howes around here before so she said no the last Howe was Earl Howe who came over for the island's bicentenary in 1988 and in fact the original lord howard never come there so um i think they they did feel quite blessed by my uh, oh, visit really? i'm sure
0: <clears throat> okay right so but what actually attracts people to the island though as a tourism destination, people, obviously you say, they limit the numbers to, what, 400 yes. a day? Uh, what actually well, we would make, other than, if you wonderful. weren't a naturalist and yes. you weren't going there to look at the birds and the whatever, what else is on the island? What else well, the beaches them? are
4: just fabulous. I mean, some, they have one beach there that is known, I think, has been declared the uh, cleanest and most beautiful beach in Australia oh, okay. um, called Ned's Beach. In fact, you walk into the surf right off the beach and it's set with all these palm trees around the uh, the base, very lush and very tropical and hundreds of tropical fish start nibbling and literally giving you a foot massage. Parrot fish, you know, and all these stripy Nemo fish. And you there you are literally i was in water up to my knees and surrounded by shoals of, of of fish and you walk out a little bit further and the fish get bigger and it's in a big protected marine zone can you
0: dive there Do they have so you diving? can oh they mm.
4: have they have some famous holes called urscott's hole and sylph's hole and around ball's pyramid the diving there is particularly good and they're very very deep holes that go down apparently you know kilometers and, uh, you can see turtles and uh there are quite a lot of galapagos um sharks i was going to ask you about there. the sharks but it's generally they i was they don't usually bite people. Oh, the usually part, uh, you know. okay. You're always told in Australia if it's smaller than you, don't <laughs> worry about it. You can take it on, you know. Um, but if it's bigger than you, you know, you've got a problem, Still mate. Aware. I think also it just, it, it's away from the hustle and bustle of the world. So it's a popular resort destination for um, Sydney ciders. and there's no high-rise development. It's not like the sort of parts of the Great Barrier Reef. There were about 17 different from self-catering to luxury resorts, but they're all perfectly integrated organically into the, the sort of rainforest there. I stayed at Aragila Resort, which means a mystical place of rest, and I certainly did find it that. And there were these beautiful luxury suites set in an ancient banyan and a kentia palm forest, uh, with boardwalks so that you don't disturb the uh, environment. And it was just absolutely fabulous, these 12 villas. It was so quiet at night and and it had access to Old Settlement Beach. And funnily enough, it was quite close to the wreck of one of the Catalina uh, flying boats, which used to apparently, Lord Howe enjoyed the uh, longest running flying boat service from uh, Sydney okay. in the from 1947 to 1974. And the islanders apparently would arrive sort of weekly and they would actually all go down. All the islanders would go down and greet every plane arrival. And a lot of them would admit that we just wanted to see what everyone was wearing, you know, because the islanders are fairly sort of hardy folk, and I think they wanted to see what the new fashions from Sydney were um, coming in. At the Arigilla Resort, the, I, I went down one evening, and the chef was sitting on the pier fishing. I said, gee, the fish we had, the, they serve a lot of kingfish, which the locals are allowed to catch, and then they sell it to the hotels there. And it's an island specialty, a lovely, fleshy, uh, delicate flavoured fish, and we'd had a trio sashimi, um, ceviche, and, and smoked of kingfish. And chef Dennis Tierney, the who who specialises at Aragilla in serving uh, a range of local fish. There he was fishing uh, on the pier with his girlfriend at about eleven o'clock at night after having done dinner. And I thought, ah, so this is your this is your trick is to come and catch your uh, a fish. Also, the snorkelling is very good. So we took a glass bottom boat out with um, environmental. Uh, Lord Howe Environmental Tours, and the guy driving our boat, man called Hiscox, turned out to be the local priest on the island. Okay. And he says he's a newcomer who's only been there 40 years. It was amazing because he, he had a sort of a preacher's voice as he was pointing out all these gorgeous fish, and, including a double-headed Maori rass called a huge fish called albert who he he fed a sea urchin to and 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 apparently albert makes a regular appearance when he for for brunch when he sees this (laughs) glass bottom boat and it's really it's very close off there's a lagoon on the one side of this horseshoe shaped island and the reef there is fantastic the coral reef is the best i've seen anywhere in the world from the gulf of mexico to the great barrier reef as dean hiscox our preacher man and boat rider said you know our coral's Better than yours is what he told to a visiting group of specialists who'd come down to have a look from the Great Barrier Reef. It really was spectacular. Because the Great um,
0: Barrier Reef is under threat, I mean, at the moment. Yeah,
4: And exactly. this, is, I hope isn't. they're preserving no, this No, no, because it's <coughs> much further, I'm um, saying, it's very strictly mm. controlled, the numbers, the access. No one can walk on them. Again, many of the snails, um, sea urchins, crabs and starfish are all endemic to Lord Howe. So they're only found there. Some people come to do the very strenuous walk up the, I think it's 700, 800 meters high, uh, Mount Gower. Uh, but you need ropes and, and and you need to be a fairly fairly good climber. And you have to take a guided walk up so they don't have accidents. Now, up in the cloud forest, which is what they call it because it's actually always in the clouds mm. and it's very moist, they have species of lichen and ferns and, again, all 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 named hawiana which are only found there. Something like 87% of the species of flora and fauna found. On the very top in this cloud forest on Mount Gower are unique to Lord Howe Island. So people go there; they walk, they swim, and they just relax. Um, it's it's got a lovely sort of old-fashioned feel away from the hustle and bustle. And when you ask the islanders whether they ever get cabin fever, and they say, "Well, once a year if we have to go to the mainland, we do." We do go there, and the priest off the island muttered under his breath, "Those poor, unfortunate souls." So I said, "Who do you mean?" He said, "The people who live on the mainland." He said, "This is paradise." Who would ever? And I thought only a priest could call mm. them poor, unfortunate souls. You kind of—you um,
0: met some of the other locals there. I think well, you got quite friendly with a postman.
4: I did. Um, They all seem to have second jobs Mm. related to tourism. In fact, even the the policeman, uh, Wayne, runs the only lost and found on. So if you lose your (laughs) towel or leave your snorkel down at the beach, you've got to go to Wayne. Wayne. And it says police (laughs) station underneath lost and found for the entire island. But I went and did a tour with Peter Phillips. He is the former postman, and he's written a book, in fact, about the famous flying boats. He told me when the Christmas mail arrives every year, um, he has to rent the community hall to sort it all out. And people have to come and collect it. Um, and we had tea at Peter's home, and it's called uh, Ch- Chase and Time Tours because he says it's the only thing they never have to do on the island is to chase time. And his wife is a, a descendant of uh, Nathan uh, Chase Thompson, who was one of the first, he was a Boston whaler who retired to Lord Howe Island I think in the 1850s to uh, start growing vegetables and to provision Norfolk Island and and the and the tall ships that would would sail around uh, Australia down to Australia and we had Tia Peters home and I had a fascinating chat um, with her and she told me about how he started the first vegetable patch on the island so there is an amazing sense of history just about everyone you even the head of tourism there her daughter she proudly told me was one was one of the first seventh generation islanders um, on the island. Of course they have a school and then I also did a tour with the curator Ian Hutton who's written the standard naturalist guide to Lord Howe Island and he told me that the Kentia palm which is the the palm that most people have all over the world these days uh, in a, in a, as an interior palm in their houses but the Kentia palm originally came from Lord Howe Island and the main nursery and, and it was endemic just to the island was on Lord Howe and so they seem to gone through cycles of the the early whaling and then the later um, the Kentia palm exports and since about the 40s tourism has been the mainstay of the island and it was Hutton who told me in fact that it was like living inside a David Attenborough documentary Um, they have 100 unique plants including the wedding lily and mountain rose, 14 species of breeding seabirds, 90 coral species, 200 species of bird and 500 species of fish on the island. And please don't ask me to run through all of them because oh, I, was I was
0: just mesmerised by... So as it, Lord uh, Howe. I mean, um, you should know what's on your any, island. Any
4: bird watcher, um, you know, any, any, any naturalist, it would just be heaven on earth to go to, to, to Lord Howe Island. Is
0: there a museum there? I mean, there must be somewhere that keep all this wonderful information. Is
4: And one okay. of the most interesting exhibits there is of parts of Sir Francis Chichester's play. Now, he was one of the first First tourist who I think he crashed there in 1931 oh, after nice his gypsy to moth mm. um, was, uh, was damaged in a storm. And the islanders who'd never seen a plane before at that point helped him fix it. I think that's, okay. that's how intrepid that's and, and uh, go-getter they are. And he was flying on the first east-west solo flight, part of his around-the-world solo flights um, that uh, Francis... Chichester was well known for I never did see the the giant horned land turtle which is one of the prehistoric animals that of which they found a skeleton on the island
0: Right but now there seems so much to do there. One wouldn't think so if it's such a small island. You said that you had to be dragged almost kicking and screaming back onto the plane to leave. Yes, if I was people just go there, for, there, how long well, would you recommend I, I they would go there. for? How long I would were you go there,
4: there for a week. I was there for about three days. Oh, not enough. just nowhere near mm. enough, I would say, to go for seven days. I mean, the flights there are quite expensive. Um, they're cheaper off-season. And you can buy packages that include accommodation. And you can also self-cater. A lot of people who were going there for special anniversaries, Um, there were some couples there. There was honeymoon couple. There, I would say you know at least spend a week visiting Lord Howe um, Island, and you, you can have a look up on the, at the website and see of, about how much there is to do. I, and just I would just advise put your your helmet on the right way and, <laughs> and practice before getting there, or just ask for an ordinary old-fashioned cycling helmet.
0: You, you were telling me earlier about the the mutton birds and and the the sailors eating those before, but there, you had a, almost an Alfred Hitchcock experience on the island. We
4: did. Well, we went out. There was a group. Um, who go out, and again, you can and one of them was South African, in fact, you can go out to Lord Howe Island and work as part of a conservation effort. They're called the Good Bush People, and they clear all the alien weeds, and you have to be, have a good head for heights because you go up 800 metres on ledges, oh, no. and some of them get landed by helicopter, and they clear the, the weeds that threaten all of these very rare protected plants on Lord Howe. And one of them, anyway, was a, was they call him the Birdman of Lord Howe Island, and I said, gosh, look, there are thousands and thousands, I think 20,000 breeding pairs of Providence Petrels that come there. In fact, I very wittily, I said, what, what do you call Lord Howe Island when, when the Petrels are breeding and feeding her? He said, I don't know. I said, a petrol station, oh, of cram. course. <laughs> <laughs> They've come a long way to refuel. They were all whirling around at top of Mount Gower. And the next thing I knew, he started imitating their call. And hundreds of them, and then said, take cover. Hundreds of them started dive bombing us. And in fact, I've got a, a film I started. I went onto a film mode and filmed a clip. And I thought, gee, this is like Hitchcock's The Birds, you know. <laughs> ter- we all had to hide in the palm trees while these Providence Petrels and, and some shearwaters as well. But apparently they're very protective of their, their nests and eggs. Mm. And, and if you do emit the right kind of call, and he's obviously got the right voice. So God knows why he did it. But it was great fun anyway. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, OK. You know, you'll still go back, I'm sure.
4: Yeah. And I was reluctantly left. I was hoping one of those legendary high winds would come in and prevent the, the day's plane from taking us out. Because they call it rush minute on the island when the plane a comes rush in. rush Because yeah. the, all the resorts go out to collect the uh, the, the new arrivals and, and to wave off the departing guests. One of the keepsakes, which is very popular, they sell a little potted uh, Kentia palm from Lord Howe, which you can, uh, you know, buy and, and sort of take. Off, off the uh, the island that that and a, and a, a sort of a little furry flightless hen, If you're inclined to collect soft toys, but I, I left, I must say, with a heavy heart. And uh, it's certainly one of those top ten destinations for me that I would love to get back to. And anyone visiting Sydney should seriously think scheduling a visit out to Lord Howe Island
0: must have been a bit of a come down now to go off somewhere else. Where did you go to once you left there?
4: Well, I went off. I was looking for an island off an island off an island. So I went down to Tasmania and from there headed on to explore some of the islands off Tasmania and spent... uh, two weeks traveling around uh, Tasmania, uh, which was a fantastic experience. I was in an island mode by then. Yeah,
0: well, you'll have to come back and tell us about that, and at least I won't have to grovel next time because it's not called after you. It's just Tasmania. No connection, <laughs> family connection? No, Ta- no, Good. No. Okay, great. Well, it sounds like you had a wonderful time on your own very personal Lord Howe Island. Thank you for coming and telling us about it. Thanks, Karen. Graham Howe is a freelance travel journalist. He attended ATE 2013 as a guest of Qantas Tourism Australia and Tourism New South Wales. He was telling us about the ATE13 in Sydney last week, and this week he was telling us about his time spent on Lord Howe Island. And to find out more about new tourist attractions and destinations across Australia and in New South Wales, there are a couple of websites. There's australia.com, there's destinationnsw.com, and lordhoweisland.info, and it's h-o-w-e, lordhoweisland.info. info. <music> Time to travel with Car and Key. Well, that's it for Time to Travel for this week. As I mentioned, I'm Karin Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. I'll be back with you next week on Monday evening just after nine with a law report. And rather excitingly, we have Mark King on, Group Executive, Operational Services Escalation and Support at SARS, who will be in our Johannesburg, or Pretoria Studios, actually, as our guest. And if you recall from last time, he was very helpful. So if you have any queries regarding your tax, or specifically this time tax clearance certificates, join me for that on Monday. That's Monday the 15th of July. Well, if you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Travel on SAFM.